Sometimes we may sound strange, but remember, we're just kids with opinions. You're listening to Voice America Kids. Stars could shine between the lines If you would let yourself go Find some place you know You can use your words, use your hands You can change the world, just pretend Express yourself, take a chance and you'll see Who you'll be It's time to express yourself Where teens talk and the world listens Presented by Star Style Productions as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. You'll rock to an hour of adolescent fusion with your teen hosts and on-air reporters. Meet and chat with cool celebrities, exhilarating experts, and tenacious teens with subjects regarding anything and everything that you want to know. It's time to kick off the fun with our star teens. Welcome to Express Yourself. That is part of the beauty of all literature discover that your longings are universal longings, that you're not lonely and isolated from anyone. You belong. That's from F. Scott Fitzgerald, and it's our quote for today. Hello, and welcome to Express Yourself. We're a program by, for, and with creative young people, a platform to give teens a voice right here on the Voice America Kids Network. I'm Brigitte Gia, and on today's show, we'll be discussing the gift of literature. And I'm Zara Hossamane. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions and brought to you as an outreach service of the Be The Star You Are charity, a top nonprofit honored by GuideStar and great nonprofits. Please visit www.bethestarur.org to make a tax-deductible donation and get more information about how you can be part of our mission to increase literacy and positive message media. Be The Star You Are has launched Operation Hurricane Harvey Disaster Relief. We need your donations to help us help those in distress by providing books and other resources. Please donate today at BeTheStarYouAre.org. And you can even donate through PayPal Giving Fund with no extra fees. In this first segment, we'll be joined by wonderful Express Yourself reporter and BTSYA event planner, Chelsea Peltrat, bringing back another installment of her segment, Past Present. Hi, Chelsea. Hey guys, it's Chelsea, and I'm so glad to be back with yet another addition to my segment, Past Present, where we link the given theme to our history. For this Gift of Literature edition of my segment, I'll be giving you a crash course version of English English literature and its evolution within the past few centuries. So let's start out with the medieval era. Now we're talking the plague is taking out about a third of the population. You know, some people can't even go out of their barricaded cities for fear of getting the sickness. And everyone's just turning to religion to comfort themselves and envisioning that light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, it was a pretty desperate time for many, especially with the ongoing famine. And so we have everyone in despair and everyone's basically just praying to God to help them out, to help them out there. And naturally, this means that much of the medieval literature was religious, although there were still a few secular works. But it's important to note that education wasn't really a priority in everyday life. So the ones who could actually read were usually the clergy because they had to be able to preach in the seminars. And so that's probably another reason for that. So once the Middle Ages end and the Renaissance begins, it all takes a huge 180. Most notably, the Renaissance marks the birth of humanism, where people began to take interest in the potential of man and their achievements. So as a result, you see people taking credit for their work and even boasting about themselves in their writings. At the time, 
many aspire to be a renaissance man, which basically means that you're well-rounded. You're well-educated and well-spoken. You've got musical talent. You're the head of the stable family. Um, you participate in the city's politics. Um, I mean, if you think of it in modern times, you know that kid in your grade who's just good at everything? You know, they're captain of the track team, nationally acclaimed pianist, number one debater in the state, president of five different clubs at school, and founder of a charity organization, and all the while still keeping straight A's in, you know, just all six of their AP classes, and then they go on to graduate as valedictorian and head to Harvard. Yeah, I mean, by now you've probably got someone in mind, and Back then, they called those people Renaissance, Renaissance men or women. So anyway, so back to the Renaissance, people wanted to be like that. So many authors took it upon themselves to either boast about their qualities that helped themselves identify with that label or helping others become one by writing some sort of a manuscript, like a wikiHow. The, the most famous one was The Courtier, written by Castiglione, where he describes the ideal man as well as the court lady. Additionally, people began to find their voices in writing when it came to politics. So we have Machiavelli's The Prince, arguably one of the most famous pieces from that time period to this day, where he advises on how an ideal ruler should act, merely on the, on the principle that it's better to be feared than loved, but one should not be hated. And even though it was, a pretty, it was pretty brave of him to state his opinions back then, it was still relatively dangerous to do, um, to do so. So he was pretty clever in disguising it as a gift to uh, the head of the Medici family, uh, who was basically the most powerful family in Florence at the time. And in Italy, oligarchs, uh, for the most part, ruled the city-states. And so that's basically how he got his message out without uh, getting in too much trouble for it. All right, so flash forward to the Enlightenment of the 18th century, and we have philosophers writing some of the greatest works in our history. So the Enlightenment was a period of time where reason and progress was championed above all. They wrote about the concepts of human rights, equality, progress, universalism, and tolerance, using basic reasoning and common sense to convey their message in their works. In this time period, we've got Voltaire, who's writing about freedom of speech, Beccaria, who writes about the abolition of unfair punishment. Locke, in his two treatises of civil government, writing about the superiority of parliament over the crown. Montesquieu with the separation of powers. I mean, by now you can probably connect the fact that the fundamental rights that we cherish, that we cherish every single day in our, in our country originated from this time period. And the great thinkers of the Enlightenment. They base most of their writings on rationalism, which with everything submitted to reason and not faith. So when they wrote, they used their words to advocate for change. And not too far after, we have the Romantic Era. Now, during this time, literature was mainly focused on emotional exuberance and nature. It was kind of a clapback against the rationality of the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment era, where Romantics sought the inspiration of religious ecstasy. They turned to the supernatural and more inwards, towards the hidden recesses of the self. They were very interested in nature and its beauty, and believed the Industrial Revolution to be a brutal attack against it. Poetry dominated the works during that era. You know, the names of William Blake, William Wordsworth, and Sir Walter Scott may ring a bell if you've ever read poetry. And these were all poets from the Romantic era. 
So when you read their works, most of the time, they'll be talking about nature and making metaphors with human experiences. All right, so wrapping this up, we've got the Victorian period. This is when books such as Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, and Scarlet Letter are making an entrance and remain present um, in our society, even to this day. The cause of high schoolers across the nation of staying up till 2 a.m. writing essays for their English teachers. Uh, The Victorian era was a time of strict rules in society where ethics and morals relate to right and wrong and were consequently applied to every aspect of everyday life. And as a result, you'll find that the literature in this era often used the characters' journeys to challenge these confining values. For instance, if you've ever read The Scarlet Letter, you probably didn't find it too strange that the hero of a novel was a woman, of the novel was a woman, who was able to embark on a journey of redemption after committing adultery. However, back then, Nathaniel Hawthorne's bold message sent ripples of shock throughout society. I mean, just the fact that the hero was a woman, and a woman who committed such a heinous crime could redeem herself, that was saying a lot. And the author, the reason why Scarlet Letter is such an important book and why so many English teachers just love it so much is because it was a crucial turning point in um, literature in that era, and it really did clap back against the rigidness of the society in the Victorian era. Uh, So finally, we've got the modern era of literature. During this time, we've got the lost generation um, with some of the greatest thinkers of our time, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Stein, Faulkner. It was a group of young adults who were left disillusioned after the World War and were unwilling to move into a settled life. War had forced this generation to grow up quickly, and through its rebellion, the, the lost generation attributed to much of the roaring 20s characteristics. I mean, you have The Great Gatsby, one of one of my favorite <laughs> books. And it's, I think it's just so great. I mean, you know, you've got Gatsby throwing these huge parties and... Within, in the midst of it, you can see that he is still pretty lonely, and he's doing it to, I just, to, like, get Daisy to give him another chance, and I just think it's so romantic, and it's just a great book. I, I also love the movie. The movie is with um, DiCaprio to this day. I mean, I watched it around mm-hmm. two, yeah, two years ago, and it's still one of my favorites. All right, so I know I'm not John Green or anything, but I hope that you guys took away something from the segment, whether it be some knowledge that just happens to be useful for the introduction of that upcoming English essay next week, or something that you can now pull out of your back, of your back pocket during dinner conversations with your family. Wow, that was oh, so important. Yeah, that was a lot of information, <laughs> and thank you for, you know, really outlying all of these different uh, eras within literature. Uh, that was that was really uh, enlightening to bring a throwback to one of your one of your eras that you defined in the segment. And wow. so you know you know what I really actually like as well is um, after the modern generation, you have that um, postmodern like absurdist literature like James Joyce's Ulysses. You have Beckett's Endgame, and you have this like weird disconnect as well that kind of goes in the same vein of the lost generation and then delves further into talking about you know what is the meaning of life does the universe have an order and i think that you know there's the beauty i i love this disparity that you go 
go in depth about um, about you know the difference between your enlightenment rationale and your thinkers and then your post World War One, World War Two, you know, disillusioned lost generation individuals who are writing about this loss of rationale, this loss of meaning, this uh, identification of man with animal, like is man really above any other animal? And you have these two schools of thought that are always clashing with one another and we can learn so much from both of them. And so I just wanted to ask Chelsea, do you have a favorite era out of all of the ones that you discussed? Uh, I mean, I definitely do admire the works from uh, the Victorian era. Um, you've got, I mean, I, I'm currently reading Huckleberry Finn in my English class, <laughs> and I just I just adore how uh, Mark Twain manages to use satire in such a clever way to uh, essentially, I mean, in the same way as the Romantic era was a backlash against the, um, the, the rationality of the Enlightenment. You've got the you've got uh, Mark Twain just trying to lash back against the confining values of the Victorian society, and he does it in such a clever way. And you know, we were learning, in English today. We were talking about how uh, how Huckleberry Finn he he thinks that stealing is wrong. You know, he has a moral compass, but yet he uses youth you uses. Uh, euphemisms to cover them up he says you know just borrowing a watermelon just borrowing that chicken and I think that really does play to the fact that uh, definitely people did have a moral um, had a very strong moral compass back then but then uh, you've got Huckleberry Finn who's like the hero and he's and he's not really following that uh, confining that I guess confined uh, line that society is making them walk and I just think it's really interesting how he twists the stories and the journeys in a way to uh, comment on what's going on in societies back then. Exactly. Yeah, he's that's a lot of good insight on uh, Huckleberry Finn. I'm glad you shared that last point with us. It's so good. Well, thank you so much, Chelsea, for this wonderful conversation about the different eras in literature. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have. Audience support our show in these amazing segments by donating to the Be The Star You Are charity that brings you this program. For more information on how to do this, go to bethestarur.org and follow our blog. I'm Brigitte Gia. And I'm Zara Hossamain. Head over to our website now at www.bethestarur.org. Don't go anywhere as we continue our discussion on literature. Are you a teen interested in becoming a radio personality? The Positive Message Outreach Program of Be The Star You Are Charity trains dedicated young people to be reporters and hosts on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com for information. That's ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Don't forget to tune in to Express Yourself Tuesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Kids, where teens talk and the world listens. Kids safe, mother approved. You're listening to Voice America Kids.
You're listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel, where teens talk and the world listens. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Now, back to our star teens. Welcome back to our uplifting, inspiring program. I'm Zara Hoffman, and you are listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids Network, brought to you by Be The Star You Are Charity. For this show, we are discussing the gift of literature. Hi, Brigitte Gia. On the show with us today is our wonderful guest, author Ashley Shelby. Ashley is a novelist and former journalist, and she has received the Red Hen Press Short Fiction Award, the Nizagam Short Story Award, and the Third Coast Fiction Prize. She was recently named a Pushcart Prize nominee, and her new novel, South Pole Station, has received praise from the New York Times, Washington Post, Time, USA Today, Library Journal, um, magazines. And besides those included in this already formidable list of amazing honors, South Pole Station was also named an Indie Next pick and a New York Times Editor's Choice book. Ashley's nonfiction original reporting on the Ixon Valdez litigation was published in The Nation, E, uh, The Environmental Magazine, and Alternet. <laughs> she is the author of Red River Rising, The Anatomy of a Flood, and The Survival of an America City, a work of narrative nonfiction praised by Salon, The Associated Press, Philadelphia Inquirer, Library Journals, and other media outlets. Ashley lives in the Twin Cities with her family and is currently working on her second novel. With that, let's welcome Ashley onto the show with us. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Brigitte. Hi, Zara. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're very excited to have you today uh, on our very fitting uh, theme, <laughs> literature. And so uh, I'll just go ahead and jump right into our questions that we have for you today. Um, I'd like to know, you know, what inspired you to write South Pole Station? Well, my sister, my younger sister, I have two, um, the middle one, Lacey Shelby, she actually did winter over at South Pole Station in 2002-2003. And at the time she did that, I was living in New York. I was a young um, book editor living a uh, difficult life in New York. And she would send these letters from South Pole telling me a little bit about um, her time there. But it was always very mysterious because she would give me general ideas about what happened, but she wouldn't give me too many details because there is an ethos at South Pole among the people who work there, which is that what happens on the ice stays on the ice. So that always, oh my goodness. It, it, and it predates the Vegas slogan, by the way, they always like to point that out. Um, so she left enough to the imagination that the story stayed in my head um, for years. And one day I just started writing a short story based on um, a bunch of people living at the South Pole. That short story was published and uh, a couple um a couple, I guess, years later, I started a novel, and five years later, that novel was published. Wow, that's so cool, and I think, um, you know, it's kind of, when I think of fiction, and I think when a lot of people think of um, fiction, we sort of think of, you know, something, some story surrounding, like, social issues, or, you know, um, something like that, so why do you think it was important to talk about climate change specifically in your novel? How did you um, come to that topic for a work of fiction? Well, Climate change is something that I uh, 
I guess I could say I'm obsessed with. Um, initially, I was very interested in the denialism, why people have chosen to deny the fact that the climate is changing. I, I wanted to understand why that happened. And some of that actually came out of my um, journalism on the Exxon Valdez spill up in Alaska. The um, lawyers for Exxon um, didn't want to... Um, basically cop to the fact that there was still oil in Prince William Sound 20 years after that disaster. And the way they did that was by sort of um, trying to undercut the science done by scientists working in Alaska who were saying, hey, listen, you know, this oil is still here. It's still affecting wildlife and it's still affecting the people living here. Um, these large corporations would try to deny that that science was valid. So uh, I already thought that was an interesting topic. And when I saw that same thing happening in the climate change discussion, one question that kept coming out to me was, why would scientists do that? Do this? Why would scientists work for corporations? Why would they choose to go against the grain of scientific consensus? And so in this book, a climate change denier um, goes down to South Pole Station to work among all the other climate change researchers. And um, you get to learn a little bit about why he's doing what he's doing. You, you get to question whether or not he even believes in the science that he's trying to produce that uh, he hopes will suggest that the climate is not changing. Um, and it, it's something that I just thought was important to explore, uh, just even for myself, to try and grapple with why people make decisions um, uh, that make the decisions that they do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, yeah, I heard about the, uh, I thought it was Exxon. I always, I guess it is Exxon. I was like, Exxon, Exxon, which one? Um, but yeah, I heard about that. And it, it, you're right. It does take such a huge, um, or it does make such a huge impact in the climate change debate where people are saying, no, this is not what's happening. Or, you know, scientists are only 99% sure. Like, I'm sure <laughs> that there's that 1% that is actually just this huge stunning evidence, which of course is not the case because, you know, there's that whole um, scientific argument that you can't ever be 100% certain about something. But like 99% is pretty darn certain, you know, it's, <laughs> it's right. definitely... Definitely happening. And so um, we do have, uh, with the political climate that we have in the states, and we do have a lot, a, a large majority of our population who says, you know, climate change is not a reality. And so the climate change denier in your novel, uh, Frank Pavano, uh, comes across almost as a sympathetic character, contrary to maybe uh, what some people believe, uh, really who those climate change deniers are. And so why did you write him in this way specifically? Or why did you draw him as the sort of sympathetic character? Well, that's a really um, perceptive comment. Yes, I did uh, end up drawing him as a kind of sympathetic figure, not sympathetic in in terms of um, getting the reader to feel bad for him or believe that he's right, um, but sympathetic in the sense that all humans can be sympathetic to other humans. Um, I think I was working things out for myself. I, I found myself angry a lot about the climate change deniers. Uh, especially the legislators who actually don't come across very well in this novel at all, uh, the kind of change denying legislators. But I have always believed that you can't tell what a person is going through at a glance. Um, there's a character in the book who tells uh, my main character, Cooper Gosling, who's, who's going through, through some struggles of her own, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, but we all have our own stuff. 
everybody's going through their own thing. We don't, we just don't all necessarily broadcast it to the world. And I don't think uh, someone like Frank Pavano would be any different. Um, and I thought it would be very interesting to explore his motivations as to why a scientist would get caught up in the denialism machinery. And I, I don't want to give too much away, but there is a backstory for Frank. And I think the reader comes away understanding how a renowned scientist could find himself in this position. You said that um, you found yourself sort of getting angry at a lot of the climate change deniers. Do you think that um, in some ways the way you wrote Frank Pavano's character was maybe your way of like coping with your anger with at, like, you know, those, I mean, like, pardon my language, but idiots who don't like who deny climate change. Um, or do you think it was sort of like a way for you to like, maybe instead of like, um, sort of like villainizing them to make them like seem a little more human? Right. I think it's very easy to create a caricature of a denialist. Um, You can, because I used to do that. And, you know, I I even have to resist that impulse today to just write people off. I think we're in a, we talked about the political climate, but I think what we're doing is we're talking past each other. Um, I have very little sympathy for any climate denier because I, I believe that what they're doing is delaying um, our, our action to deal with a, a truth. Um, and luckily, I'm, I have such great faith and hope in young people because this is not an issue for young people. Um, young people overwhelmingly understand that climate change is real and are very interested in coming up with solutions. Um, but the old guard um, still cling to these beliefs. And so, yes, I am actually still angry on a regular basis. Uh, we have a climate denier running. Uh, we have several climate deniers running federal agencies right now, which is pretty scary. And um, I don't have room for sympathy, room for sympathy for folks like that. But I do think that there has to be a way for us to be able to understand where others are coming from in order to help them change. Definitely. And, you know, there is... There is that whole aspect of it where, uh, you know, in the short term, a lot of people, these individuals who might be climate change deniers or who might support legislature uh, who, that pushes through climate denying policies, these individuals are in the short time losing their jobs. They're maybe the plants like the factories in their areas closed. They have no way of sustaining themselves. But then we also have this larger issue of this is real. This is reality. The environment is changing because of human actions. And how do we deal with both these short-term you know, negative impacts of putting in environmental regulations that's cutting down on these abil- people's abilities to maintain their standard of living and deal with being the cause for a lot of the you know, bad things that are happening to our very environment, to like the ground that we stand on, if you will. And so, uh, you know, um, specifically focusing on climate, you know, what do you think is the role of the writer maybe in today's society or, you know, narrowing down what is the role of the writer um, with these issues? Like, how do you as a writer think that your peers should deal with the issues that are rising in today's world? 
I mean, that's a great question. I actually published a piece not that long ago that argued for a new form of what's called climate fiction um, that I termed first impact fiction, which uh, basically just describes fiction that is set in the very near future, not some faraway future, um, in which the first impacts of climate change begin to make themselves known. And frankly, that's already happening. So to call it uh, first impact fiction or climate fiction, to give it a genre is almost misleading because my argument is that this is now going to become contemporary fiction. It's realism. Um, This is going to be the world we're living in. And it's not going to look apocalyptic at first, but it is going to look different. And we're going to have to document that as writers. And when we write about these scenarios as science fiction, it creates a distance that allows a reader to feel like, hey, this is fiction. This is never going to happen. And so they almost end up feeling comfortable reading it. But what we need to acknowledge is that some of these impacts that we are talking about, not only are they likely to happen, they are already happening. We've seen it in Texas and we've seen it in Florida. And and very tragically right now, we're seeing it in Puerto Rico. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, Well, thank you, Ashley, for this amazing conversation. Unfortunately, we are out of time for this segment. Audience, please do head over to our web, uh, to Ashley's website, ashleyshelby.com, to learn more about Ashley's works and South Pole Station. Visit our radio site at expressyourselfteenradio.com for photos, descriptions, links, blogs, and more. I'm Zara Hossaman. And I'm Brigitte Gia. Also, please visit our charity site at bethestarur.org and watch our fun and informative videos at youtube.com slash bethestarur. Stay right here as we continue our fascinating discussion on the gift of literature. Show the world your smile Be the star you are If you are ready to be inspired, energized, and edutained, you've come to the right place with our two life-changing programs at BeTheStarYouAreRadio.com. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's our lifestyle show, Star Style, Be The Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. On Tuesdays at noon Pacific, teens talk and the world listens on Express Yourself Teen Radio on Voice America Kids. Come play with us at BeTheStarYouAreRadio.com. You're listening to Voice America Kids, now with 33% more active ingredients and no artificial coloring. You're listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel, where teens talk and the world listens. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Now, back to our star teens. Thank you for staying with us here at Voice America Kids. I'm Brigitte Gia, and our program is Express Yourself, giving youth across the world a voice to be listened to. For this edition of Express Yourself, we are continuing our fascinating conversation regarding our theme, the gift of literature. And I'm Zara Hossamane. We're back in the segment with star guest Ashley Shelby, award-winning author of the new novel South Pole Station. Here's a bit more about South Pole Station. Do you have digestion problems due to stress? Do you have problems with authority? How many alcoholic drinks do you consume a week? Would you rather be a florist or a truck driver? 
These are some of the questions that determine if you have what it takes to survive at South Pole Station, a place with an average temperature of negative 54 degrees Fahrenheit and no sunlight for six months a year. Cooper Gosling has just answered 500 of them. Her results indicate that she is abnormal enough for polar life. Cooper is not sure if this is an achievement, but she knows she has nothing to lose. Unmoored by the recent family tragedy, she's adrift at 30 and, despite her early promise as a painter, on the verge of sinking her career. So she accepts her place in the National Science Foundation's Artists and Writers Program and flees to Antarctica, where she encounters a group of misfits motivated by desires as ambiguous as her own. The only thing the Polies have in common is the conviction that they don't belong anywhere else. Then a French scientist arrives, claiming climate change is a hoax. His presence will rattle this already imbalanced community, bringing Cooper and the police together to the center of a global controversy and threatening the ancient ice chip they call home. A warm-hearted comedy of error set in the world's harshest place, Ashley Shelby's South Pole Station is a wry and witty debut novel about the courage it takes to band together when everything around you falls apart. And with that, let's welcome Ashley back to the show. Hi, Ashley. Hi. Um, so just continuing from the last segment, um, you were talking about how um, you wrote an article about how um, it's uh, like climate change fiction is sort of becoming its own genre, but um, it's not really like science fiction because, or you don't want to call it like science fiction or even like give it its own genre necessarily because um, then it sort of seems like a distant thing. It seems like something that'll happen in the future and not something um, so urgent as it clearly is. Um, so do you consider yourself a climate change uh, or climate fiction writer or do you think that's sort of a narrowing um, category? Well, it's been fascinating since the book came out. Apparently, I am a climate fiction writer. Uh, I've been identified that way uh, simply because uh, there are themes of climate change in the book, uh, unlike other writers who are foca- focusing on what um, is called cli-fi. And I, I should mention that that term was invented years ago by a journalist named Dan Bloom. Um, that uh, I am actually writing about pr- climate change you know, in the past, and when I was writing this book, I mean, bear in mind, you know, it takes some time to write a book. Um, I Five years ago, I thought that the climate denialism um, of basically the Bush administration was in the rearview mirror. We weren't really needing to worry about it. So it was almost more of a, um, a historical look in some ways of that period of time. And I was feeling very optimistic. Uh, and it has become oddly relevant and, and and completely unintentionally, because um, when you turn in the manuscript, the finished manuscript, it takes about a full year for a publisher to publish it. That's how long the production takes. So this was unintentionally relevant. And I have become identified as a climate fiction writer, both for this novel, but also for some short stories that I have written um, in the past year, dealing with what I call a uh, climate impacted America. Oh, wow. That is... That's quite the the coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, just after a year, bam, 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 the events lined up with the publication of the book. I know. And that is quite something. And that's the thing is that we did, I guess, all look at climate change denialism as a sort of, as really a thing of the past. And I think that, and maybe, uh, I, know, I know vaccines was also a big one where people thought denialism and this denial of what was going on 
was a thing of the past, was history, so to speak. And now it's just kind of jumped up and surprised us <laughs> in the midst of modernity. And now we have to kind of deal with it and deal with um, the individuals who deny climate change and also deal with, I guess, their humanity at the same time, because we can't just label them as monsters, but they're also advocating for something that we believe is not right, you know, is not the correct path that we should be taking. Right. And so, um, you know, tying into it, maybe this idea that we have to both polarize ourselves and also, you know, come back together and try to solve today's issues. There's an international element in South Pole Station. And, uh, you know, there's where the scientists from all over the world volunteer to help the stranded scientists. And so was that part of your book to uh, symbolize this interconnectedness or was there uh, a, a, some sort of like really, you know, a big purpose behind um, you writing this element in? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I, um, I fully believe that that is what would happen if there was a, a polar station um, in distress, which happens in this book. Uh, and bearing in mind that there, um, Antarctica is considered a continent without country. It is a non-political space. Um, and the countries who operate there um, in terms of their research um, are signatories to what's called the Antarctic Treaty. Um, so they're not going to try to drill for oil there. They're not going to try to claim any part of it. But they're going to use it for research purposes, for science. Uh, and so I fully believed that all of the international stations there would come to the aid of stranded scientists or scientists who saw their experiments threatened because of political interference uh, from their home country. And, you know, it, it's absolutely fascinating. India has a station at South Pole, or I'm sorry, at Antarctica. Um, Britain does has several. Of course, the United States has three. Uh, but China has two. Japan has one. Uh, France has one. It's, it's absolutely an, a wonderful international space. So, of I, I initially, I, I thought it would be an accurate depiction of what would happen if there was a station in distress and scientists in need of help. Um, but I also wanted to make the point that science is um, is something that should not be politicized, and that no matter what country a scientist comes from, his or her um, allegiance is to the integrity of science. So that's why you actually have the Russians helping the American scientists at the, at the South Pole Station. That's why you have China coming to the aid of the astrophysicist whose experiment is threatened because of a political wrangling in Washington, D.C. Uh, it, it was important to me to just um, show that the truth that is science should not be politicized um, nationally or globally uh, because it is sacrosanct in, in that way. We are all searching for answers to the way that um, nature works and nature, including the universe, answers to the universe. So um, that was why that was included. Yeah, I think it's really awesome that, you know, you still have this hope that we, the international world can cooperate. And I think it is really a hopeful thing that we don't have to fight over anything, everything. We don't have to disagree um, over everything. And so, so it does kind of seem like, you know, in addition to being a writer, you are sort of like an activist as well. So do you think your um, work as an activist and as, as someone who advocates for, you know, um, action on combating climate change, um, do you think that overlaps with your work as a writer? Or like, how do you think your activism like translates into your work as a writer? 
That's a great question. Uh, I think as a writer, you have to be careful not to become didactic, not to let your activism come through in the prose. We, we're talking here about the gift of literature, and literature is at its, is at its heart storytelling. And so uh, I think sometimes fiction can become quite boring when you have characters getting up on their soapboxes for too long and you have a narrator making a point about something that maybe the author thinks is important. Um, I find that these messages are best relayed through story and through character. And so in this book, you have characters representing lots of different backgrounds uh, in terms of where they come from, what they've done with their lives and what they believe. And the goal is not to tell the reader what to think. Um, or what the right answer is. The goal is simply just to make them engage with the idea and come to their own conclusions based on what they've read. So I try very hard to separate those two things. The activism only comes into play in terms of my interest in certain topics. I do have an interest in unpacking things um, having to do with science and climate change. I I do have an interest in um, conveying the fact that if if international communities are going to cooperate, on anything, it's going to be science. Because if you've ever met a scientist who's serious about his or her discipline, you know they do not care where their collaborators are from. They only want to know that the science that they're practicing is good science, um, meaning just that it, it adheres to things like the scientific method, you know, basic basic scientific principles. So I find that if I am too uh, too engaged with the activism side, uh, it makes for bad writing. It makes for boring storytelling. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I, I love that you pointed that out, that a lot of you know authors will put their message in terms of symbols, in terms of stories, uh, so that it isn't it isn't like a newspaper article, I guess, <laughs> about uh, a viewpoint or it isn't like a blog post. It's a work that readers can really delve into and immerse themselves in. And um, you know, it is to a certain point, uh, as you mentioned beforehand, you know, writers should kind of, you know, put forth these ideas that society really needs, that climate change is real, uh, that we should do something about it. But um, I do love how you're able to keep your activism in a little just so that it is more fun for the reader, um, but yet still put that in so that the message is clear. And so uh, just something to really end on for our audience today. Uh, what advice, Ashley, do you have for young people who want to become writers? Oh, gosh. Well, the main message I have is that it is okay to be a bad writer for a while. It is okay to produce bad prose. It is okay to fail. And in fact, I would argue that it is absolutely necessary. Um, I look back at my early writing and I cringe, but I would never change the fact that I made those efforts. I think sometimes, especially, you know, a lot of writers tend to be real smart cookies and they're used to being successful at things um, academically. But writing is different. Writing, uh, writers need seasoning. They need time and they need um, effort and they need to fail. And I want to impress upon anybody who's trying to write to write what you want to write. Feel okay if you're making mistakes. Even if you, you look back on it and you cringe like I cringe at my early work, know that that's part of the process. I just feel that writers don't talk enough about failure uh, and rejection, which is part of the game. But persistence is key in writing. Uh, practice is key. Um, and, and also just let yourself off the hook that you're going to write some bad stuff. Um, but those, th- those bad sections of prose, those are the bridges that get you to the place where you're writing at your best. So my, my main piece of advice is do not be afraid to fail. 
Exactly. That's that's perfect to end on. And, you know, tying that back to climate change as well, you know, uh, persist in fighting the climate change deniers and persist in that message and also persist in your writing, I guess, is the takeaway today. Yes. Well, you know, thank you so much, Ashley, for this wonderful conversation. It was brilliant to be able to, you know, share in your insight, uh, so to speak. Unfortunately, we are out of time, audience, during the break. Be sure to check out our 501c3 literacy and positive media charity at bethestarur.org. More information is under events at our website at btsya.org. Remember, guys, BTSYA has also set up donations for hurricane disaster relief at btsya.org, and please visit and donate to those in need. I'm Brigitte Gia. And I'm Zara Hassanane. Make sure to go to www.ashleyshelby.com and check Ashley's workout, plus find more information about South Pole Station. Visit www.expressyourselfteenradio.com for more information about our show. When we come back, we'll be continuing our inspiring conversation on the gift of literature. Are you a teen interested in becoming a radio personality? The Positive Message Outreach Program of Be The Star You Are Charity trains dedicated young people to be reporters and hosts on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com for information. That's ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Don't forget to tune in to Express Yourself Tuesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Kids, where teens talk and the world listens. We don't care how you got here. We're just glad you showed up. You're listening to Voice America Kids. You're listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel, where teens talk and the world listens. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Now, back to our star teens. Welcome back. Thanks for staying with us here at Voice America Kids. I'm Zara Hoffman, and our program is Express Yourself. And today, today's hour is all about the gift of literature. I'm Brigitte Gia. In this last segment, after talking to reporter Pet Chelsea Pelchet and amazing author guest Ashley Shelby, uh, we're going to go ahead and finish with a discussion about the true gift that literature really is. And so um, I thought it might be good to start off with maybe the function of literature in one's life. And so for me personally, you know, uh, as everybody else uh, or as most people use it, uh, I use literature as a tool for communication, a source of entertainment and a way to express oneself, really tying it back into yeah. the Express Yourself radio show. And I personally, uh, I love reading a literature in my spare time. And um, I do it also to learn about myself. And I think that's maybe why there's a huge focus put on works of classic literature uh, yeah. in schools, right? Is that you learn a lot about yourself and about your surroundings. And so, Zara, you know, um, do you yeah. think maybe you use literature more for communication or entertainment? Or what is the main purpose of literature in your life? Yeah, I think it's sort of just to um, make sense of life, I guess. And also, I think um, the 
quote that you said at the very beginning of this whole show was really um, um, sort of how I sum up the purpose of literature in my own life. It was um, something along the lines of, you know, you find out that you're, um, it's sort of just like a way to feel like you belong and that, you know, your longings are universal longings and stuff like that. Um, so I think that's really a big function of literature for me because a lot of the times, um, you know, like, I, I think it's like wrong to say that, you know, cause like a lot of people will have complaints, especially like I've heard like my teachers say before that parents often complain that we only read like sad books, right? We only read <laughs> Hamlet. We only read like Shakespearean tragedies and all that. Um, and they all say, oh, well, you know, life isn't completely sad. Like, why would we like read these books? But I think it's because sad doesn't necessarily mean hopeless. You know, the fact is that life is hard. Life, you know, does throw slings and arrows at you whenever. But um, it's really that um, sort of sense of hope that you get from those characters that like, you know, do overcome um, things like fortune, things like, um, you know, fortune, I mean, like luck. Sorry, I've been reading Hamlet too much. (laughs) But um, uh, and, you know, like any unfortunate circumstance, I think that's what's really remarkable and what um, the purpose of literature, I guess, in my own life is that it really does give me a lot of hope. And I guess that's sort of why, um, you know, I started, this is going to sound weird, but it's sort of why I started like becoming obsessed with the idea of hope because, um, you know, it's sort of like strange that something so optimistic as hope can thrive in even the most, um, you know, dire of circumstances. So I think that's really um, the function of my own life. And I think, yeah, so it's really cool that you emphasize that um, there are so many different uh, functions of literature. You just mentioned like so many in your own life. Um, So what do you think, like, you mentioned so many, what do you think is like the biggest function for you? Um, I would personally say, um, hmm, I think it would be, you know, discovering myself and then discovering the ability to express myself. You know, as you said, uh, definitely like literature is the way we collectively as a species, you know, uh, express our life experiences or like uh, put into words our beliefs and things while at the same time constructing worlds and constructing stories for an audience to be entertained by and to be enlightened by. And I think um, for me personally, that is really what literature serves as, you know, what purpose it does. Um, I think it's Definitely, when I read literature, I look for things that relate to myself. Uh, I look for things that might help me uh, gain a better understanding of myself or about the society I live in. So I love that point that you brought up. That's just, it's, you know, literature is this, maybe this mapping of our souls as human beings and who we are. And just to go off a little bit uh, about the hope that you talked about specifically. Um, personally, I believe in this one specific theory about the universe where um, we as humans come up with this idea of probability, of like chances that the universe could take one path or the other. Um, but in this theory, what they say is the universe really only takes one path, right? In the present, this series of actions, no matter what probability they had of happening, they happen in a certain you know a certain path a certain order that creates the results or whatever present you're living with today has happened through this series of events and you could argue that because there has been no other series of events 
in the universe that the universe only takes this certain path. There's no such thing as probability. There's no such thing as actually like changing. So it's like the idea of fate, basically, like Shakespearean fate. But the thing about humans is um, we are human. We are, in essence, you know, human beings, because even if we know about this idea of fate, even if we know about the the universe's like easiest path or the universe's only paths, we still uh, retain the hope that we are able to change it. We still, you know, try to grasp universe and take it into our own hands, take matters into our own hands and change our lives. And I think that really ties in with hope and, uh, you know, why it stood out as a value uh, that has prevailed throughout human history is because we as humans, we, there are a certain you know, number of things that we can't control. We can't control the weather. We can't control what other people do, but we hold out hope that yeah. We'll be able to control, you know, yeah, exactly. Like certain things in our lives, we'll be able to direct our own paths. And we hold out hope for like everything. Even when things are bad, we know that we can always try to reach out and grasp it and make it better. And so, you know, just going off of that real quick, um, you know, we you mentioned Hamlet and Shakespeare. And uh, you actually had that slip between fortune and luck, which uh, I found interesting because I, I wanted to know, Zara, do you think literature is more of the author's voice or the reader's interpretation? Because I know, like, uh, especially uh, when you're reading something, you tend to take on, like, a certain voice. So do you think it's yeah. author voice or do you think it's your own interpretation when you read literature? Yeah, well, I think... Um you know, I am sort of in that group of people who think that you really shouldn't um, bring the author's life and their experiences too much into a piece of literature. I still think it's important to like know author's background and stuff like that. But I think it just gets so like tedious and so like useless <laughs> when you sort of like try to project everything that the author has gone through onto their like work of art. Like, you know, it's like, oh, well, Shakespeare suffered, like he lost his son, which means that like, <laughs> art, like oh my gosh. Yeah, and, like, you know, so like, I just feel like when you, that like, it sort of limits analysis, I think, when you sort of just look at literature through the lens of the author's life. So I don't really like doing that that much. I mean, obviously there, it still has its merits, but I just don't like doing that too much. Um, as for, um, you know, taking literature from a reader's perspective, um, I also think that that's really important. It is really important to see your own experiences in literature. And that is, um, I think the, um, I think literature is sort of more of how you interpret it. But I also think like just being in English for like, I don't even know, being in like countless English classes, like, <laughs> There's definitely some interpretations that are just, like, too far-fetched and, like, like too mm-hmm. out of it, I feel like. Because, like, sometimes people will just... The thing is, you're, I think your interpretation needs to be backed up by evidence. Otherwise, it doesn't really matter. Like, oh, okay, you think Hamlet is, like, you know, he's the happiest guy ever. Well, okay, you can just say, like, you could just say, oh, yeah, well, that's my interpretation. But if you don't have, like, text and evidence to back it up, it doesn't really mean anything to me, honestly. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's sort of my view. Uh, what about you? Do you think that it's more of like the reader's interpretation that, um, literature should be based off of, or do you think it's sort of a mix of both the author's voice and the reader's interpretation? Well, uh, first I'd just like to say, yeah, I definitely agree with you there where there's sometimes some people look into a work and you just try to follow their gaze and you say, where, yeah. Where are you seeing that? You know, like I, I don't. Hamlet was not. I, I, 
don't think he was that happy. No, I really don't think he was a he was a happy teenager. No. <laughs> um, and you're like, oh wow, I guess that that is a very interesting interpretation. But um, I I personally uh, err on the side of um, the fifty fifty the the fence sitting where I I think yeah uh, there's there's this one school of thought that came out um, you know just very recently within the last few decades where they say the reader's interpretation will make up as much as 50% of a work of literature. And, you know, I read about that theory and we talked about it in AP English, got to love that additional English course. And I was thinking about it and I was like, yeah, that, that really is what it is because the reader is the person interacting with the work and, you know, making the images in his or her head. So the reader is a huge part of it. We have these things called, I think they're schemas, I think they're called, uh, where uh-huh. we have preconceived notions of everything. And so if I say tree and you say tree, the trees that we're thinking of in our heads are completely different. And so if you put that in the context of reading a work of literature, mm-hmm. then we start to see how each and every human is going to have a different interpretation of a work that is, you know, both completely different from what their peers and completely different from the author's, you know, image as he or she wrote the work. And so I do think that it is really 50, 50. Um, But I, you know, I do like to put my own spin on things. I interpret things uh, differently from my peers and it's very interesting during the class to like see the different interpretations. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree. Um, yeah. And I just think, um, you know, just the whole idea of so many people having so many different perspectives, I think it's um, sort of, it sh- sort of speaks to how literature sort of transcends um, basically everything, you know, it transcends what the author maybe meant intentionally. It transcends a single perspective. And I think that really does capture the beauty of literature as a whole. Well, thank you so much, Bridget, for that awesome conversation. As always, it was fantastic. Um, sadly, it is time to say farewell. We give our thanks to Star Style Productions, Cynthia Bryan, Be the Star You Are, and our Voice America Kids crew, especially our engineer, Matt. Thanks to our guests and reporters from across the world. And thank you, our listeners, for making us a top-rated program. I'm Zara Hasanin. And I'm Brigitte You have been listening to Express Yourself, an on-air global community where teens talk and the world listens. For information on our creative community, go to expressyourselfteenradio.com and our main site at bethestarur.org. Until next week, be kind, delve into some good literature, and be here. Speak up, speak out, and express yourself. Thanks for joining us this week on Express Yourself. Produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, be sure to visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, when teens talk and the world listens on the Voice America Kids channel. Until then, remember to express yourself. Stars that shine between the lines if you would let yourself